series on the subject of prayer. We're going to take the next number of weeks to do this. And my aim is to move quite slowly and deliberately. You're not shocked by that, but slowly and deliberately through what we commonly have referred to as the Lord's Prayer. Or maybe we could call it, as some have, the Disciples' Prayer. It's a model prayer for us to use. But the the whole intent in this little series and walking through this time is to really help us develop our own life of prayer, which is why the Lord gave us this passage. And we're going to see that very clearly Uh, particularly this morning as we put this in its context, the Lord gave us this so we would know how we should pray. Christians pray. They do. Conversion is connected to a sinner calling out to God for mercy through Jesus' substitutionary death. That's prayer. Conversion, the genesis of our salvation, begins with prayer. Trials regularly come, do they not? And I know of no Christian who has not turned to God for help. And such an appeal is prayer. Christians gather weekly to worship the Lord together in a gathering. And prayer is found in virtually every element of what we do when we gather. We're praying. Christians pray before they study the Bible together whether they're meeting in a small discipleship meeting or in a class setting, usually you're going to find Christians are praying. Christians pray before a meal. They pray for those who are sick. They pray when there are needs that are pressing in. They pray particularly when answers to life's issues seem absent. The reality is, is that Christians do pray. Now, if we think about that carefully and we think about it long enough, none of us are really going to disagree with that idea. Christians actually do pray. But when we ask the question, do Christians pray well? Do Christians pray correctly? Do they pray enough? Do they pray for all the items of which scripture actually calls Christians to pray? And do we pray consistently? Now that's, that's really the place where we struggle with prayer, isn't it? It's not that we, we think Christians don't pray. All Christians pray. But there's more to it than that. The answer to these questions I know can bring a heap of conviction. And I don't know about you, but most sermons on prayer convict me. And they can leave you feeling guilty. They can leave you feeling inadequate. They can leave you feeling, yeah, I need to do more of that. That's really not the aim of what we want to do because we know that there can always be more consistency in prayer. In fact, Oswald Sanders noted in his classic book, Spiritual Leadership, if I wished to humble anyone, I should question him about his prayers. I know nothing to compare with this topic for its sorrowful self-confessions. That's probably true for all of us, for virtually every Christian. Every Christian says, yes, I could pray more. I don't pray consistent enough. Think about this as well. The apostles who walked with the Lord Jesus Christ had a front row seat to how our Lord prayed. They even asked him, seeking his direct instruction on what their approach to prayer should look like. In the Gospel of Luke, 
he tells us that the disciples inquired about how to pray when they had been watching him pray on a certain occasion. That's how Luke begins Luke chapter 11. They were watching him pray and so they asked him, would you teach us to pray? Now what is fascinating about this particular request from the disciples is that Jesus had not only modeled prayer for them, he had actually already told them how to pray many, many times. And what's so interesting about Luke 11, when they ask him how to pray and they know that he's already taught them about it, the answer that he gives them is the same thing that he had been teaching them over and over. There wasn't anything new. Matthew actually, in his gospel account, provides the content of the sermon that he delivered likely over and over and over in the area of Galilee for a number of years. That's what the Sermon on the Mount is. We'll talk about that more in a moment. But right in the middle of this typical sermon of Jesus that displays what a citizen of the kingdom of God actually looks like is a description on how disciples and members of the kingdom should and should not pray. He actually tells them, pray in this way. Really fascinating. The very people who watched the Lord pray and heard the Lord pray, they heard him pray personally many times. They are the people who actually also heard him repetitiously teach how to pray and they still ask him the question, how do we pray? And his answer did not deviate at all from the sermon he had been giving them over and over and over, word by word. I take that to suggest to us who find it challenging to know what to pray or how to pray with intentionality and consistency that the answer Jesus repeatedly gave the disciples is the same answer that we need to hear and apply. Pray in this way. Many of us don't pray because we, we stop and say, well, I'm not really sure how to go about it. I'm not sure exactly what to say or how to phrase things. Really? Has not the Lord told us to pray in this way? You say, well, that's, that's all there is to prayer? Well, I... I do take it that there is more definition that can be added to our prayers, but there really isn't more in terms of content as to what we should be praying. So in this few weeks that we have together in this little brief study, we simply want to provide a biblical understanding from Jesus' teaching about prayer from Matthew 6, 9 to 13. And we are going to give some practical suggestions of how to implement his teaching in our own intentional, concentrated, daily approach to prayer. That's the idea. Now, there's a couple of assumptions that I have as we start this time of talking about prayer. First of all, I'm going to assume in this series that you personally understand and you have appropriated personally the truth of the gospel, meaning I'm assuming that you are a Christian. Now, some would say you can't assume that. You, you can't make that assumption because not everybody hearing this is going to be a Christian. True. But I'm going to speak about this subject as if you are a Christian. Secondly, I'm going to assume that you are a member 
And by that, I mean not just that your name is on the roll, but that you are a participating, committed member of a local church. You say, well, you can't assume that either because there's so many people who are not members of a church who are likely going to hear this. But I'm going to assume that as we teach through this. I think the Lord assumed this as he taught how to pray. Now, if you're not a Christian, I know how to remedy that. You need to trust that Jesus is all there is for your salvation and that what he did on the cross was sufficient to give you life in God forever. And it's only believing in Christ that's going to give you that kind of access to God. Now, if you're not a member of a church, I know how to remedy that one too. You need to join a faithful Bible teaching church where you're going to week in and week out be exposed not to some kind of a flashy program, but just the consistent moving through the word of God and living out the Christian life with a group of people who are committed to the Lord. And if you need reference to a good church, I've got one in mind. I I have an idea of where we could point you. So those are my assumptions. And I, I I don't mean it to be flippant. I really hope that you do trust in Christ because God's really under no obligation to answer the prayers of an unbeliever. And I want you to experience what it is to have a fellowship with God in which you're communing with the one who created the world. And so you have hope that he's going to answer the needs of your heart. And I really do hope and pray that you will connect yourself to a body of Christians where you can live out the Christian life. And that you'll meet with them regularly and pray with them often and study the Bible together and think about what's going on in your life that needs to be really corrected by the word of God. And you'll live that out with a body of people because if you don't have that, if you're not a believer, you can't pray to God with any hope that he's going to respond to you. And if you're not in a body of Christians, the reality is if you look into this prayer, it's going to be almost impossible to apply anything in this prayer practically. It assumes that you're around other Christians in a committed, ongoing way, which is what church membership is. So, what are we going to talk about when we come to this subject of prayer? How should we pray? Well, just a a few notes on this. What I, what I plan to do over the next few weeks, this morning I'm going to kind of set the scene and I'm going to help us really understand the context of prayer within the gospel of Matthew, the sermon on the mount, the prayer itself, and even our own prayer life. And then we're going to dive into the prayer. And there's really just two parts to the prayer. There is a focus upon God and there is a, a, a giving of personal requests that we find in there. And that's really all there is in the prayer. And that's how we're going to arrange it. A little bit about context, then how do we focus on God and how do we present our needs to him? That's really the aim in prayer. So let's start with the first part that we're going to look at, and that is understand the context. If you want to pray well, you need to understand the context. And and what I mean is understand the context of which this text that we're talking about finds itself in. 
And this is just basic Bible study. Most people, when they talk about prayer, they say, just get to the, the nuts and bolts. When, where, how, what do I say? How do I arrange it? What tools do I use? How do I use the Bible? Let's do Bible study. Before you can apply, you have to understand And before you can understand meaning, you have to see it in its context. And so I want to set that context for us. We begin there. So let let me just set the context for the Gospel of Matthew. I I know we spent five years in the Gospel of Matthew, but you might have forgotten. It was a few years ago that we studied it. The Gospel of Matthew was likely the very first Gospel to be written, and it was circulated among These four accounts that we have, Matthew is probably the first. Its purpose is to demonstrate to those who read it that Jesus is the long-awaited-for Messiah who alone can save his people from their sins. And you actually see three themes that are repeated over and over through every portion of the book. The first theme is that Jesus is the long-awaited-for Messiah. He was the Messiah promised long ago by the Old Testament prophets. And you can see it even in the very first verse of the Gospel of Matthew. In that very first verse, Matthew actually uses the word genealogy, and it's the same word that if you looked at its Old Testament counterpart, is the word that Moses used in the book of Genesis to really put together the whole book of Genesis, the Hebrew word toledot or generations, Matthew is trying to tell us that Jesus himself is the culmination of all the covenant generations that you read about in Genesis or in the Pentateuch. Furthermore, Matthew tells us that Jesus is the son of David, meaning that he's connected to the Davidic covenant in 2 Samuel chapter 7. Jesus is the predicted king who would sit on David's throne forever. Matthew also tells us that he's the son of Abraham, which is really significant because that then means that Jesus is the culmination of the Abrahamic covenant, promising a seed that would bring divine saving blessing to all the nations of the earth. Jesus is the long-awaited-for Messiah, and everything points to that. That's just one of the themes, and you'll see it over and over and over through the Gospel of Matthew. There's a second theme. The second theme in Matthew's Gospel is that Jesus is the one who will save his people from their sins, Matthew one twenty one. Over and over and over through the account, you will see that his name, Jesus, which means Jehovah or Yahweh saves, it's a common name common name in the first century, but it was uncommon in its application through the life of Jesus who wore that name very uniquely. He alone is the savior of all who would believe. He is the anticipated savior, the Messiah that was promised, the savior who alone can save people from their sin. There's a third theme. That third theme in Matthew's gospel shows us that Jesus is God who is favorably with us. Chapter 1, verse 23, his name, Emmanuel, means what? God with us. And over and over and over, through what he teaches and what he does, Matthew's gospel shows us this is God who is actually favorably with us, which is what the Old Testament covenants anticipated, that God would come and be with his people. You say, well, what does that have to do really with prayer? Well, let me stop and ask you a question. How many books on prayer have you read? 
You might have read quite a few. I have, I have a whole section in my library filled with books on prayer. And that's probably one of the hottest topics among Christian writers is prayer. Why? Because everybody feels like they want to pray more. Why are we listening to everyone else other than the one who said pray in this way? Do you think you're going to find somebody better than the promised Messiah, the savior of the world and God in human flesh? So whatever he says about anything is highly significant. Don't you think? Particularly about prayer. What more needs to be said than what he has said? So if we just saw his teaching on prayer in the context of the gospel of, of Matthew itself, we would say, well, this is the Messiah who saves, who is God telling us, here's how you pray to God. But I also want you to think through this in terms of just the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew 5 through 7, that's the context through which we find this, the Sermon on the Mount. It's traditionally called that because you you see in Matthew chapter 5 verse 1, he went up on the mountain. Likely there was a particular mountain that he regularly went up to to meet with his disciples. They went up on the mountain and he sat down and his disciples came to him and began to teach them. This is, this is one sermon. You look at the end of the sermon in chapter 7 and it says, when he had finished these sayings. So this is one account one account that he likely, it's, it's like a, a, a symbolic sermon of sorts. It's an actual sermon, but this would have been representative of how he preached throughout the area of Galilee. Chapter 4, verse 23 says he was preaching all the time through the area of Galilee. Well, what did he say? Likely this content here. And we find that borne out in the other gospel accounts because you will find other sections that sound a lot like this. Like Luke chapter 11 When he does teach the disciples how to pray, he uses these very words, except that was on an entirely different occasion. They had been watching him pray, and that's when he taught them how to pray using these same words. This occasion, he's on a mountain, and it's in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount. Two two different occasions. So he's likely giving this sermon over and over and over for a number of years. This sermon contains a description about what sort of people will actually comprise God's ultimate future kingdom. It's not a message merely about doing good deeds for humankind, but more of a discourse on the life of those who are disciples of Jesus. These are the characteristics in the Sermon on the Mount of people who live in the kingdom now as they anticipate living in the fullness of the kingdom to come. It's directed specifically to those who personally identify themselves with Christ. You see it in chapter 5, verse 1, when he sat down, who came to him? His disciples came to him. And then it says he began to teach who? The crowds? No. The disciples. The disciples. This is specific instruction to the disciples on how they should live within the kingdom. It, It begins with that very famous and and really profound section that we regularly call the Beatitudes, which are, are really an introduction that comprise the characteristics of kingdom people. 
You look at Matthew chapter 5, verse 13 to 48, it describes all the unique authority of Jesus above even the perfect old covenant law. His teaching never contradicts the old covenant law, but it fulfills everything the old covenant law was pointing us to. And chapter 6 of this sermon begins a new section, and you see it in the opening verse. The theme of this section is beware of practicing your righteousness before men to be noticed by them. Otherwise, you have no reward from your father who is in heaven. And then he begins to chronicle different ways people practice their righteousness. Giving to the poor, prayer, fasting. That's how people practice their righteousness. And he gives us a principle. The affirmation you seek determines the legitimacy of your righteousness. Whose affirmation are you seeking in your righteous deeds? That determines whether or not your righteous actions are actually legitimate or not. Are we seeking the glory of God? Or are we seeking the approval of people? And prayer is one of those actions. When you pray, are you seeking the actual priorities of God, or what is it that you're seeking? What is driving you? What's motivating you? What's what's driving you to pray as you are? Prayer is just one of those activities. And the verses we're looking at, verses 9 through 13, it's not even the The only section here, it's not the only content of how prayer is described. There's actually a negative illustration, what we shouldn't do in prayer, and a positive illustration, what we should do in prayer. The negative illustration is found in verses 5 through 8. This is how you seek the approval of men above God. Righteous prayer is not self-promoting. You see that in verse Five, when you pray, you're not to be like the hypocrites. They love to stand and pray in the synagogues and on the street corners so that they may be seen by men. Truly, I say to you, they have their reward. The affirmation they were seeking, the praise of men, determined the illegitimacy of their righteousness because all they wanted was self-promotion. Prayer is not impersonal. You see that in verse 6 when you pray. Go into your inner room, close your door, and pray to whom? Your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. It's very personal. It's not impersonal. You go and you pray to your Father. Prayer is not manipulative either. You see verse 7. And when you're praying, do not use meaningless repetition as the Gentiles do, for they suppose that they'll be heard for their many words. What does that mean? Well, the Gentiles would get together in prayer, in public, and try to manipulate whatever God they had by saying tons and tons of words. If I say enough, and I say enough of the right things, and I can manipulate the God to do what I want. That's not what prayer is. Are you seeking the affirmation of God or the affirmation of someone else? So that will determine the legitimacy of your righteousness. So then, what's legitimate prayer? Well, in verses 9 through 15, that's you're going to see the same themes here, just in reverse. No self-promotion exists in righteous praying because it's all about God. Longing for God's exaltation, the coming of his kingdom, the accomplishing of his will. Genuinely righteous prayer is very personal. It prays specifically to our Father. 
righteous prayer is submissive, not manipulative. Everything about the model prayer in in chapter 6, verses 11 to 15 reveals a submissive heart of absolute dependence upon God. Are you seeking God in prayer? You want something else. That's where this fits within the Sermon on the Mount. What kind of righteousness do you have in your own praying? Determines, it'll be determined by the affirmation that you're seeking. God or someone else? I want you to think about the context of the model prayer itself just before we start unpacking some of this. And as I said, I'm going to take my time here because I want you to understand what Jesus is saying and why he said it this way. Because he wants us to pray in this way. First, do you notice in this model prayer that he gives us, we are commanded to be a praying people? We're commanded to be a praying people. Jesus instructed his disciples, verse 9, pray then in this way. He's telling us to pray. The words that follow are God's expectations for how his people should approach him in prayer. This is what God expects. You say, well, does that mean 1 Thessalonians 5, 17, when we pray without ceasing, we always have to say these words? No. But these themes ought to be consistent in what we are saying, why we are saying it, how we are saying it in all of our prayer life. Think about that. When you're praying for your children, when you're praying for an issue in your personal life, are your prayers reflecting the values that you find in this instruction on prayer? Or do you want something else? Are you asking God for something else other than what he has prioritized here? I I think when he says, pray then in this way, it, it really does suggest that we should be having concentrated, dedicated times of prayer. Yes, I know that we can pray throughout the day. We can pray through all the things that we go through through the day. And I've heard some people say, I don't really have a dedicated time of prayer. I just pray as I go. Well, I hope you do. But Jesus said, I want you to spend time praying like this. I think he assumes we would have dedicated times of prayer. If we look into his own example and his own life, Jesus spent dedicated, intentional time in personal prayer. If the Lord himself, God in human flesh, did that, do you think we should say, ah, well, that was good for him, but I think I'll just pray, you know, as I have chosen. There is no schedule here. There's no time of day. There's no length of time that's prescribed but we do find a model prayer used when we pray. And it is a command, pray this way. So it's commanded. I want you to know something else about this prayer in general. It is a model prayer, not a mantra. It's a model prayer. We are to pray as the English Standard Version says, like this. Or as the New American Standard says here in verse 9, in this way. In other words, this model prayer reflects a series of priorities. 
Among all the examples we see of prayer in the New Testament, we have no example of anyone actually using these words in their own prayer. So Jesus said, pray in this way, and you'll never find anybody praying these words. Isn't that interesting? Does that mean the rest of the New Testament were disobedient people when they prayed? I don't think so. But similar to that tried and true acronym that many of us have used through the years, you know, the acronym ACTS. And we would structure our time of prayer because we found that helpful if we had some themes to think through. Acts standing for adoration, confession, thanksgiving, supplication. And you kind of move through those themes. Has has anyone found that to be helpful? Just keeps you focused and concentrated because maybe some of you are like me. You start praying and you start thinking about everything else you should be doing through the day or want to do. Or it's amazing how many things pop into your head when you should be praying, right? And so you like one of these little acronyms like ACTS, adoration, spend time worshiping the Lord, confession of sin, giving thanksgiving to God, bring supplications, praying through certain needs and requests. Isn't that helpful? Well, that's essentially what Jesus has done here. He's given us themes by which to pray. It is a model, not a mantra. So fine to memorize this. Find to memorize it because it then gives you the themes by which you're to think through as you pray. And it doesn't have to be just these exact words every single time, but it should be these themes. Let me give you a third little general statement about this model prayer. It is a mode for public praying. It's a mode for public praying. It's a mode for congregational prayer. How do I know that? I I suggest you go through and circle all the pronouns. Notice they're plural. Our Father, give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our debts as we have forgiven our debtors. Do not lead us into temptation. Deliver us From evil. Who's he speaking about? Christians. Christians who are interacting with each other on a regular basis. That's why I say if you're not a part of a local congregation, it's really hard to make use of these things because who will the us and the we refer to? But if you are, this is who he wants you to live these themes out with. Who are we to forgive? Well, those people in your church who keep offending you. Right, who are we to reconcile with? Those, those people in our congregation who we're living out our Christian life with and we find it challenging. When we say our Father together as a congregation, it's, it's not just me and my individual time before the Lord, it's us. He's our Father. How are you praying? If you looked at the way, just the general ways that you pray, how much of what we've said already about prayer really does fit the the content of your prayer life? And you say, well, I thought you weren't going to just make us feel miserable here. I I don't want to do that. But do you know where you need to start? Do you see that some adjustment needs to be made in how you approach prayer? Do you see that this should be more regular, more intentional, more concentrated as a time in your life? I hope so. So if you're convinced of that then, 
How do we pray? How do we pray? Well, there really are just two parts to this prayer. We're going to look at a little bit of the first part of this in verses 9 and 10. And the first part of this prayer is focus on God. It's really very simple. Focus on God. You say, well, that seems self-evident. We're praying to God. So, well, that doesn't mean you're focused on God. You can have a conversation with anyone and be focused on yourself. Can't you? You know those people who are always thinking about what they're going to say and not really listening to what you're saying? One of you do. You know how that is. You're having that conversation. You can tell they're not really listening to you. They're just formulating the next answer. Yeah, well, what about God? When you're in prayer, are you just, you have the laundry list of self-focus in front of him? Are you really focused on God in prayer? Because prayer can become easily self-centered. You would think that the fact we are talking to God would make it more naturally God-centered, but sin has impacted us like that. And, and you know the way sin has impacted us is it always makes us naturally bend towards self-interest. And so it would be helpful in the way that we pray to orient the way we pray to focus first and foremost on God and not ourselves. You even see this in the opening section when you do look at the details of the prayer. Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And then he transitions to personal. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our debts as we have forgiven our debtors. Do not lead us into temptation. Do you see the emphasis? Focus on God before you present personal needs. Focus on God. How do we do that? Well, he teaches us three God-focused elements as foundational to a life of righteous prayer. Three. We're just going to look at the first one today. We'll do the next two next Lord's Day, Lord willing. Just the first one of the three. First, here's how you focus on God. Pray for the sanctifying of God's name. Pray for the sanctifying of God's name. This is really profound. I wonder if you find it to be true of the yearning of your own soul when you come to God in prayer. Do you find yourself yearning as you start, Father, Father, cause your name to be prized and valued. I hope that's what your heart longs for. And even in the moments when you don't feel that, it is right to reorient your affections on that. Father, cause your name to be prized and valued as different and uncommon and holy. Now, how do we do that? How do we do that? How do we pray for the sanctifying of God's name? Let me unpack that just a little bit. Here's how we do it. First, you approach God 
as our Father. I want to camp out here just for a moment. Can I? I'm going to, whether you let me or not. Approach God as our Father. Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. That's how we're called to begin a concentrated time of prayer or even a public approach to prayer or a congregational interaction with God in prayer. Why? Well, many, many, many religions view God as very impersonal, distant, unknowable. This is radically different. Jesus says, no, I don't want you to talk to God like he's distant, unknowable. I want you to talk to him as if he were your father. He's your father. Now, it's true that the Bible never says that it's wrong to pray to the Son. I haven't found anything that says it's wrong to pray to the Holy Spirit. And yet when I look into the prayers of the Bible, I find very few prayers directed to the Son. I can find a very short prayer at the end of the book of Revelation where the Apostle John calls out to Jesus to come quickly. I'm unaware of any place in the Bible, in the New Testament particularly, where someone is praying directly to the Holy Spirit. It doesn't mean that it's wrong, but it's not modeled for us that way. What then is the emphasis here? Why does he say pray to God as the Father, as your Father? Well, if we're emphasizing the fatherhood of God, what does that say about who we are? We are the children of God. That's how he wants you to approach him, as if you were the children of God. But let me put that in a more biblical way for you. The phrase the Bible uses to describe us is that we are the sons of God. That's the idea. Why do we pray to God as our father? Because we are the sons of God. That is a highly important concept in the scripture. A son is one who represents the father. He's of the same nature as his father. He comes from the father. A son is an heir to the father's estate. The son was a bearer of the very image and nature of the father. And with that, he bears certain responsibilities and he carries a very special privilege with this sonship. It's highly significant because in creation, Adam and Eve were both created with the divine purpose of being image bearers of God. Both Adam and Eve were called to bear the image and nature of God, weren't they? In that sense, they were both sons of God. Image bearing is to represent God and his rule over all that he had created. They are to be his children, his sons who represent his will as God rules over the earth through his image bearers, both men and women. They do that as the sons of God. And someone's going to say, now, wait a minute. That sounds just a little too masculine. That seems to skip over the unique beauty and contribution of femininity. Well, I I want you to understand the biblical concept, not just the common natural concept of sonship. The biblical concept is much bigger than this. The term son, it's not just a word in the Bible that is used to describe masculinity, but representation and family connection. Sonship is representation and family connection. That's the emphasis, not just masculinity. Let me give you an example of that. 
The Apostle Paul reminds us in Romans 8, 14, listen to this. All who are being led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. Is that only the men? All who are being led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. That would include men and women. Why? Because it's demonstrating who we represent and a family connection to God. It's a unique word, sons is, that shows that family connection. In fact, Paul goes on in Romans 8.15 to say, you, all of you who believe, you have received a spirit of adoption as sons by which we cry out, Abba, Father. Who does that refer to? Only the men? No, it's all who have that privileged position of family connection that can call out to him, Abba, Father. That Aramaic term, Abba, is a word stressing family acquaintance. Now, it's not quite accurate to suggest that it's an intimate word like the word daddy that we might use, but it is not a word that we would use like boss. No, it's family connection. He's our father. We all, men and women alike, refer to God as father because we are all his image bearers, his sons. Sonship, as it was established in the original creation, was not just a responsibility either. It was also a privilege. It was a privilege. You get to wear the image of God in front of all the creation. In the original creation, Adam and Eve uniquely enjoyed the most privileged position possible. They had complete, full access to God, didn't they? Genesis 3, 8, they walked with him and he with them in the cool of the day. His presence was favorably with them with no distance, no fear, no hesitation. His relationship with his children was perfect. Their access to him was free. It was deeply personal. You understand that. If you're a parent, you understand that. Your children have a unique point of closeness with you, unlike any other relationship. My kids don't come to the front door and knock on the door to see if they can come in. Well, David does every now and then, but that's just to mess with me, right? He's playing with me. No, they just come in. Why? They have walk-in privileges. Did you say to your children, now don't come to the door and knock on the door? No, they knew that, didn't they? They just walk in. They'll walk in any open door. Any time they want. Whether you like it or not. Why, why do they do that? Because they feel a connection with you and you a connection with them that's unique because it's family oriented. You understand that. When one of my children comes to me to talk with me, I, I, just, I just promise you, I do like you, but I like them more. I like them differently than you. That's not wrong, is it? There's everything right about that. There's a family connection. It's personal. It's a privilege. It also promises an inheritance. That's what sonship promises. When we approach God, we're thinking about a position we have, a privilege we have, and an inheritance. Isn't that what sonship represents? Again, in Romans 8, Paul reminds us that since we are God's children, we are heirs also of God and fellow heirs with Christ, chapter 8, verse 17. 
when sin came in, it didn't remove our sonship. Yes, the image of God is disfigured a bit, but salvation in Christ is putting the image of God back together in us, restoring us to that image that we're to bear in completion and that we will enjoy in finality in a future inheritance. We're heirs. In fact, Paul would go on in Romans 8 and verse 19 to say that the creation is actually waiting eagerly for the revealing of the sons of God. Of who? The sons of God, the people who call him father. When my wife and I planned our, the future use of our estate, we put together our trust. There's a lot of things we thought we would do with whatever we have that we would want it to, to be used for. But do you know who was first and foremost in our minds when we thought about how that future use would be applied? Our children. Yes, I, I want ministry to be impacted and affected, but I was thinking of my kids because they're going to get what I have. That gives them some interest right now in what we have. They, they get it because they're the inheritors. Why are they the inheritors? They're our children. There's something unique about that that speaks to inheritance. When you think of God, you think of a unique position you have with him that's unlike anyone else or anything else in the universe. It is a privileged position and it is a promised position of inheritance. You ever, you ever find yourself saying, but I don't really feel today like a child of God. You think that kids ever have those moments where they think, I don't feel real close to mom and dad because I've done X, Y, Z. Well, did that change anything about their position? Did that change anything about the privilege? Did that change anything about the future promised inheritance? No, that's true. It doesn't matter what the children do. That position is ingrained in them. That privilege belongs to them. That inheritance is, the inheritance is theirs because of who they are. So listen, you are going to feel at times closer to God and more distant. Yes, and that happens as your mind is full of God or absent of God or circumstances are hard or more easy. You're going to feel that. It means nothing in terms of who you are as the sons of God. That was given to you not because of what you have done, but because of what the ultimate son of God accomplished for all all the sons of God, right? When you say our father, do you ever pause to think about what that means, especially when you don't feel it? Why do you think Jesus said pray in this way? Our father. Because everything else flows from that unique saving relationship that we have to God through Jesus, the ultimate son of man, ultimate son of God, right? Everything else you say comes from that relationship. If you want to see the name of God sanctified, you pray to him as if you were one of his, his children. That's why we pray this way. Let's look at just a little bit. We won't finish it this morning, but just a little bit. Let's look at this first request. 
We're praying for the sanctifying God's name. So we do that by approaching God as Father. We also do that by asking, secondly, ask the Father to hallow his own name. Ask the Father to hallow his own name. Hallowed be your name. I'm just going to touch on this for a moment. This is the initial request. Did you notice that? This is a request. This is you asking God to do something. I wonder how many of you have thought of it that way. Oftentimes because of that little ACTS acronym, and we start with the A that means adoration, we assume that hallowed be your name is just let's spend time adoring the Lord, rehearsing his characteristics and his attributes. Nothing wrong with doing that. That's just not what's being done here. Fine to do that. You don't have to put off asking God to do something after you first adored him for his character. Our Father, ask. Bring a request. Here it is. Ask him to do something. Ask him to hallow his own name. Now, how many times in a week do you use the word hallowed in general conversation? A lot? No, that's, that's a very Matthew 6, 9 kind of word, isn't it? We, we just don't use that word any other time other than when we're, we're talking. That's why I didn't change it in the point. I don't want you to think of something else. Hallow his name. What is that? Well, the word hallowed, though it's not used much, it is a prominent biblical theme. It means to make something holy. To make something holy. So we, we need to pause for a moment and say, okay, well, what, what does holiness mean? If we speak of something as holy, what do we mean? Because if you read the Bible carefully, the word holy is very, very important. When Isaiah sees the Lord and the angels are surrounding the throne, what do they say three times? Holy, holy, holy. There is no attribute in the Bible celebrated that way other than holiness. It's the most celebrated attribute in scripture of God. What does it mean? I tend to define it as this. I, holiness is a moral otherness. A moral otherness. I say otherness because holiness means you're, you're referring to someone or something that is not common. It's not normal. It's not casual. It's not similar to anything else in the created universe. That's God. He is other than all other things. He is unique unto himself. That's what makes him holy. And because he's so distinct from everything else, his otherness demands a kind of moral purity and devotion that recognizes that uniqueness. So that recognition of his otherness and his uniqueness through the way we live in relationship to him, the moral way we live in relationship to him, that's the moral or the purity aspect of holiness. We live in a certain way to him because he's different than anything and everything. What is holy is treated like nothing else. If we were allowed to not only see but touch and perhaps even hold and wear some of the crowned jewels belonging to the monarch of England, we would probably be ushered into this climate-controlled room with the best technology used to protect and preserve these age-old items that represent the highest rule and authority in Great Britain, a kingdom that has existed for a thousand years. 
We'd likely be required to use specially prepared gloves and handle each piece as if it were the most unique piece of clothing on earth. We would not dare treat the crown jewels as if they were a graduation ring or a well-worn golf hat or that favorite pair of tennis shoes that your wife wants you to throw out and you just will not give up on. No, we wouldn't treat it that way. These jewels are different. They're unique. They require the most careful approach to how they are handled. And that would just be a taste of what holiness means when you think about God. Whatever degree of care we may have for the most rare, expensive, historic relics of earthly kings and queens, the concept in relationship to God would far exceed that. So what are we praying when we ask God to hallow his name? Let me just touch on this and then close with it and we'll pick it up from there next time. But there's a unique way that this phrase is used. And I just want you to think about it. This phrase is given in what is called the passive voice in the Greek New Testament. That is... We're asking God to cause other people to hallow his name. We're asking God that others might revere his name as holy. That's different than saying saying this phrase in the active voice where you would be saying, God, you just hallow your name. Here you're saying, God, cause your name to be hallowed. Do you see how that would impact the way you pray for your wife, God? Cause her heart to prize you as holy. Do you see how you'd pray for your children's salvation? God, would you awaken in their heart a yearning for you to be valued and prized as completely unique? Do you see how you would pray for government? for nations, for missionaries. You don't have to put off prayer requests to the end of prayer. You start at the beginning. Father, would you cause your name to be glorified in this Muslim country that has no idea who you are and has never heard the gospel? Would you cause your name through the witness of these servants who have gone into that place, cause your name to be valued and prized and holy? Do you see how this restructures everything that you've been praying about to think of it in terms of the holiness of God's name and people prizing the name of God? So what would that look like this week for you? What would it look like for you in concentrated prayer? And if you could just take... Can we start simple? Don't, don't tell yourself, all right, I need to set aside an hour every single day to pray. When the reality is you've never really had a concentrated time of prayer that's lasted more than five minutes. So if that's you and, and that's fine, you say, I, I pray, you know, it's kind of popcorn all through the day. But to sit down and I, I don't know where to start. Could you start with 10 minutes? And could you start by reminding yourself of some truths about who you are in relationship to God him being your father. 
And then just begin to make a list. Who is it that needs to hallow the name of God? And how would you pray specifically for those people? And my guess is people, events, circumstances of life, challenges, 10 minutes is going to fly. And you're going to finish that saying, that's unique. That's different. And if that's the way Jesus asked us to pray, do you not think that that's the way he would like to answer prayer? What would happen, do you think, if we all began to pray with this mindset about everything around us? What, what do you think God would do? He wants to answer these prayers. Pray like this. So start to do that. Let's pray together. Father, your children are sitting in front of you. And they, they long to represent you well. They, they want to show your image to the world. They want your name to be hallowed. Lord, as we unpack this in the next number of weeks more in terms of prayer, I pray that it would excite us, it would thrill us, it would begin to change and transport the way we pray so that we are fixed on your glory, fixed on your name, loving and prizing who you have made us to be in Jesus. Father, I do ask for those who are sitting in this room or listening to us this morning who are not genuine children of God, sons of God, I pray you would show them how valuable the work of Jesus is and that it's worth giving up everything in life to have that and to relate to you as a child who can always come, who can always pour out their soul to a listening Father, I pray you would save people today. I pray that you would cause your name to be hallowed in the hearts of unbelievers. And among us, Lord, who you have imparted life through Christ, deepen that yearning for your name to be glorified. Show your name in profound ways in holiness. And help us to value that more and more in the days to come. We pray that you would enliven the life of prayer among us. So that we, we see the activity of God in the most profound ways among us. And we pray for this through the Son. The ultimate Son. Who is even now in front of the Father interceding on our behalf. The Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Let's stand together.